Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Crystal Patterson. Crystal is general counsel with Gulfstream Commercial Services, which is a full-service commercial real estate development company and is located in Kentucky. Crystal has joined me before on previous episodes. Our most recent one, we talked about legacies, and I think that was a really great episode. Um, Today, we're going to talk about partnering with your assistant. Thanks for joining me again today, Crystal. Thanks for inviting me, Mary. Well, I'm intrigued by the title that you came up with for this episode. What kind of assistant will we be talking about today, and why did you choose the verb partnering? So assistant could mean really any person who helps you in doing the machinations of day-to-day life, whether that's at work or in your personal life. It could be your administrative assistant, paralegal, personal assistant, or even the nanny of your children, really. These are the people who you work with on a daily basis to keep the balls in the air. In order to do that effectively, I think you need to view them as a partner and not necessarily a subordinate. 
Yes, they report to you and you may ultimately be accountable for their performance, but the more you view them and treat them as a partner and adopt the mindset that you're in it to win it together, then the stronger your collective results are going to be. I really like that concept. Can you elaborate on some of the partnerships you forged in your professional and personal life? Sure. I've had the blessing to partner with several people in both my professional and personal life over the past several decades. Um, I'm going to describe two examples. So prior to joining Gulfstream, I was a partner at Fredrickson and Byron in Minneapolis, where I was a commercial and fiduciary litigator. I worked with the same administrative assistant or secretary, as we used to call them back then, for 15 years. I could not have done my job without her, and no doubt I would not have been nearly as successful as I was without her help. Much of what we're going to talk about today has to do with lessons that I learned from or with her. Um, I'm also a parent. So for seven years, my primary form of child care for my two daughters was through au pairs. So young women from foreign countries who resided in my home and took care of my girls for one year at a time. This was a different dynamic for a variety of reasons, but it was still a partnership. The more I learned about them, their interests, their strengths and weaknesses, goals, their hard boundaries, and their love languages, the better I was able to lead them. And then in turn, they could lead my girls when I was not there to do so. So how do you go about establishing a successful partnership? So as I alluded to a moment ago, the first step is really understanding who you're working with. Um, and there's a variety of areas that we need to explore here. So the first really is, what are the areas you want help with? In a professional setting, it could be document drafting and editing, calendar management, email management, such as reading, triaging, and drafting you know, preliminary responses. It could be time entry, filing, court docket management. Um, but in a personal setting, it might be specific categories of housework, errands, childcare, mail management, bill payment. In either setting, establishing a clear list of areas and expectations is critical to be sure that each side understands the ground rules for performance. Without these, you're going to be ships passing and no one will know exactly what, when, or how things are to be done. These are the rules of engagement, the expectations, and they're also the performance goals against which everything else is going to be measured. And as we'll discuss later today, they're going to be the guideposts against which your performance evaluations are going to be based. And so in doing this, do you look at the person you're working with, assistant, do you look at their strengths, weaknesses, challenges? What do you do there? Right. So that is one of the things that you should look at is what their strengths and weaknesses are. So are there things that they're better at? Um, in the professional setting, it might be that they're exceptional at time management or triaging email, document drafting, phone skills. Um, it could even be that they have a really, really deep understanding of specific court rule nuances or court staff personalities. Um, the laundry list in the personal setting could be just as robust, right? Some people might be exceptional at running errands, but not so good at bill payments. So really taking the time to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are will then help you figure out on that first step, what is it that you want them to do? Well, are you asking them to do things that they're not very good at? Maybe that's not a great idea. Now, in the professional context, hopefully they can manage most of the tasks that you're doing, but we're all human and there's all things that we're better at and worse at. And so if you have a clear understanding of that to begin with, it's going to be a lot easier to set expectations. So which kind of goes back to something you said earlier, which I think sometimes I was talking with somebody this week about 
people that ha- are no longer with our organization that we don't miss, right? And we're like, well, that means we didn't do a proper job of hiring because if we don't miss them when they left, then we didn't hire the right person. So part of that is what you said about really identifying what you need and then selecting somebody who at least has sufficient skills to meet most of those needs. Would that right, be exactly. fair? Exactly. And yeah, then I agree with that completely. And then what about once you've done those first couple steps, understanding what your assistance about, whatever role they're playing in your life? Right. So it's also important to understand what your assistance goals are. So is this position their be all end all, or is it really a bridge to another position? Um, there was a time when I was in private practice that I worked with both a soon to be retiring um, administrative assistant. And then also an up and coming paralegal whose goal was to go to law school. While I gave both of them challenging work, the paralegal was obviously in a different mindset to learn, strive, and grab onto information at every opportunity. My administrative assistant was a sage who was exceptionally capable, but she really wasn't all that interested in reaching for the next brass ring because frankly, she had reached for several of them previously and achieved them. And that was okay. They were just simply at different stages in their professional lives. And the urge to learn and achieve was different. Not wrong, just different. So I recall one of the first paralegals that I had, I would look at her and like, she's super skilled and she fits that description. She didn't really want to go for the brass ring. And I spent a lot of time and energy trying to get her to go for the brass ring, only to realize I could reach my hand out, but if they didn't want to come. And so with me then... I was putting a lot of energy that didn't make any sense. And so sometimes you have to say, she's really good at this and that's what she likes doing and not push them to a point that they either don't want to be at or can't succeed at in some cases. Exactly. I really like your strategies. Do you have other suggestions? Yes. So I would also recommend learning your assistant's love languages. So most of us have heard about Gary Chapman's five love languages as it pertains to romantic relationships or parenting relationships, but the same concepts ring true in professional contexts as well. So consider whether your assistant is motivated by words of affirmation. So these are the verbal and written praises, giving frequent feedback is, is, the thank yous, the pat, the literal pats on the back is, is, are they motivated by those? Because if they are, then maybe that's something you can provide more of to make them feel appreciated. Um, is your assistant motivated by acts of service? So this is the idea that you're doing tasks together and not just simply delegating things to them. It also might encompass some flexible scheduling for them. If that's something that's important for their um, work-life balance. Um, consider whether it's important for your assistant to have quality time with you. So this is the, you know, let's run out and grab a coffee together. Let's have lunch together or simply providing some one-on-one mentoring time. Um, then you might consider whether they're motivated by gifts. And in the work context, this is primarily monetary compensation. So a friend of mine is a veterinarian and he has a veterinarian assistant and it is very clear. She does not care whether she is told thank you. She doesn't care about scheduling. She really is rewarded by money and he's okay with that. And she's okay with that. And that's simply the contract that they have negotiated between the two of them. Um, and then the last love language that Gary Chapman talks about is physical touch. Now, obviously that's dicier in a work environment, but it's not completely off the table depending on the people involved in the setting. So 
Um, if you're not aware of them, there's lots of things out on the internet where you can research the love languages. And there's also some guidance on how you can put them into practice in a professional context. So I would, I would encourage people to take some time to learn about that if they don't already know. I have to say, I really, I like that context. Personally, what I always find easiest in the work relationship is if, if it is money, because then it's really easy. Figuring out the other ones can be difficult. And in that context, I have a friend who runs a company and she was sharing a story about her assistant and she routinely, and she's one of those who has a high volume of email. And those of us who have a high volume of email, it's just easiest to do. We're just trying to get them out of our inbox as fast as possible. But she said she would take the time to write, thank you, I really appreciate all you're doing. But it was in the email. Her assistant quit and she did an exit interview. She said, well, you never said thank you. She goes, what do you mean? I put thank you and how much I appreciated you in almost every email I sent you. She said, but you never once walked into my office to say thank you. Mm. And so I think that was a really good lesson for me in saying, oh, yeah, what each person needs is a little bit different. Well, what about communication, learn and work, learning and working styles? Well, so actually your story um, perfectly ties together this idea of understanding the love languages, but then also figuring out your assistance, communication, learning and work styles. So on the communication front, do they do best with the verbal interaction so that you can give them lots of feedback and clarifications? Um, so the story you relate, that person obviously was craving verbal interaction or do they do better with written instructions so they have a reference guide? So the attorney you're referring to was saying thank you in an email, but apparently it just simply got missed or overlooked in that context, which is unfortunate. And, and that's where I want to make a point of like voicemail messages and post-its. Sometimes, you know, when we're really busy, it's just easiest to leave a quick voicemail message or to scratch something out on a post-it. And people perceive those things differently in terms of the level of importance. And so if you're trying to deliver a meaningful message, try to really figure out how is it going to be best received by my assistant and how are they going to not only take it to heart, but then also have it as their you know, instruction booklet for what it is that you want them to do. I was at a law firm that set, told, trained us to never use ASAP for how quickly we needed something because as soon as possible was not specific and basically meant when you, when you get to it. So if you only put ASAP on it, so if you really needed it by Friday at noon, put Friday at noon. And I always thought that was a good example of that type of communication. Yeah, that's, that's very, very good point. Um, also take some time to learn your assistant's learning style. So are they a visual learner? Do they do best with diagrams, flowcharts, written instructions? Or are they a verbal learner? Would they, do they do better if you simply explain things to them rather than um, write them out or draw them out? Um, timing of instructions is also important. So some people prefer to get a little list at the end, at the beginning of the day, saying these are the you know, three most important things we need to get done today so that they can then prioritize how they're going to get those things done. Um, and other people are just totally fine with the ad hoc, you know, just throwing stuff at them left and right throughout the course of the day. Um, taking time to figure that out can help streamline how your workflow works throughout that. Um, and that also ties to work style. So can they handle frequent interruptions or do they really need some quiet time to do their deeper work? Are they more of a morning person where they're most productive and cranking the stuff out during the morning? Or are they more of an afternoon um, worker? You can learn those things so that you can optimize performance. 
And then I also want to make a note about headphones and music. Um, some assistants love doing that. Like if they're in the flow of typing up something for you, they've got the headphones on and they don't want to be interrupted. And the question is, are you okay with that? Is, is that something, is that a boundary that you're willing to respect? Or is that something that annoys you to no end? Because that is probably something you need to navigate. Um, feedback, how, how is it best received? Is it better verbally or in writing? But on all of these things, whatever it is that you learn, talk about what your strategy is going to be and then try to stick with it as best that you can. Um, another thing to talk about with your assistant is what are their hard boundaries? So for some people, it's going to be an end of day cutoff. So like I can never work past 6 p.m. because of you know the following reasons or every Wednesday I have this and I need to leave at a certain time. Um, assistants have a life outside of work just like we do. And just like we don't enjoy being late to our children's after school activities or missing out on our favorite book club. They don't either. So figuring out, okay, will they check email and voicemail after regular business hours? Or are they, a, you know, I'm six o'clock, I'm out and I'm not doing anything further. Are they willing to work on an occasional weekend? Um, if they are, then, you know, that's an area where maybe then you tie back into the love languages and figure out, okay, they're willing to give me extra time on a time that normally they wouldn't be working. So how can I then reward them in the form of their love language to be sure that we're really conveying that we appreciate that extra effort? Um, and then to the extent possible, when you learn those hard boundaries, try to respect them because it will ultimately lead to a healthier relationship where they don't feel like you're walking all over them. This is Mary Vandenack, the host of Legal Visionaries. I want to share some information today about one of our sponsors, Collaborative Planning Group. Collaborative Planning Group is an organization that consults with clients in regard to life insurance, long-term care, and disability. I have personally had the opportunity to work with Erica Moorhead, the founder, president, and CEO of Collaborative Planning. I can personally vouch for the knowledge, expertise, and client focus of the organization. Collaborative Planning has expertise and a great process to create solutions, implement strategies, and review plans annually to give their clients peace of mind. An important aspect of working with collaborative planning is their true collaboration with other professionals, including financial advisors, attorneys, and CPAs, to ensure that clients have their full team and that all products have a purpose and align with the objectives of the client. Collaborative Planning Group provides honest, transparent, quality life, disability, and long-term care insurance plans that will be there when you need them. Visit collaborativeplanninggroup.com today to learn more. I think it's important to establish mutual boundaries. We did a podcast with Sasha Shilcutt, who recently published a book called Brave Boundaries, which I think is a really great book on the issue of boundaries. And she talks a little bit about really communicating mutually about what are your boundaries, what are mine. I have a new assistant who I walked in, I could tell she was scared to death of me. And I could see her hand shaking. And I said, okay, sit down. I think I'm scaring you. And we talked about it. And I just told her, here are the things that will help you not, you know, work with me as well. So I, I think it's actually mutual. And then we, that helps the relationship. Well, what other strategies do you recommend? So in the professional context, I think deciding what involvement you want them to have in your personal life can also be kind of a, an important decision to make. So 
um, the assistant that I've been referring to throughout this podcast, she had my ex-husband's phone number. She had the phone number of my nanny and she had viewing capabilities for our shared family calendar. Um, and while this approach is not for everyone, it ensured for us that she wouldn't accidentally schedule a conference call with opposing counsel for a time when I was supposed to be at one of my children's events. This ultimately avoided many conflicts um, on our scheduling. And sometimes she was actually the one to identify a time management gap that we hadn't even considered. Uh, my current chief financial officer has an assistant who's very aware of his personal fitness goals, and she's not shy about reminding him around lunchtime to stop what he's doing and actually go work out because um, she knows that's a goal of his and, and that's a system that works for them. So determining these boundaries with a professional assistant may take a little bit to navigate, but it ultimately could yield some really big rewards on the work-life balance front. And if you're talking about a true personal assistant, so someone who's really helping you on the home front, well, then all the things that we've talked about, you sort of have to consider the reverse of it, including how much do you want them to actually know about your professional life and, and weave their work into what you're doing professionally. Um, and then lastly, I would encourage you to make an effort to understand the work habits of your assistant's other work providers. Most attorneys in private practice share an administrative assistant with other attorneys. So what do you know about these other work providers? Are they procrastinators who always complete court filings at the very last minute possible? If so, and to the extent you can, you might want to adjust your work style to avoid end-of-day projects for your assistant just because it helps minimize the stress for them. I think that's great. We actually have gone to project management to help make that happen so that we, but I'm thinking as we're talking about this, I'm going to go back and talk a little more about the love languages. So after you've gained the knowledge about your assistant, how do you go about implementing what you're trying to achieve? I think the key to remember is that it's a marathon and not a sprint, even though if some days it feels like a sprint. So on a daily basis, try to bear in mind the things that you've learned as you delegate tasks to your assistant, provide them explanations and feedback help prioritize their work with their other work providers, and then honor their hard boundaries as well as their communication, learning, work, and feedback styles. Some days you're going to be successful and some days not so much. But the key is to stick with it. And if something isn't working, then you need to have a conversation about that. For example, if your assistant leaves at five o'clock on the dot every day, you really need help until 5.30 every Wednesday because of some outside demands, then you need to talk about adjusting his or her Wednesday schedule to accommodate your needs. Or it could be that you're the junior associate whose work gets the least priority because of the other two more senior and demanding partners assigned to the same assistant. Well, then you might need to have a conversation with HR or others to help empower your assistant to give you the attention that you also need. It's a process of constantly trimming the sales. So you mentioned the daily process of integrating these things into practice. What role do performance reviews play? Performance reviews are crucial. Um, when I was in private practice, I was on my firm's paralegal committee, and we oversaw the annual performance review process for all the paralegals in the firm. So in a firm of Midwestern, Minnesota nice attorneys, I really saw the performance reviews fall into three buckets. First bucket I'm going to call the worst. Um, so these were the attorneys who didn't take the time to do it at all, or if they did, they really didn't do it well. They simply checked the boxes provided no commentary. They didn't really provide any helpful feedback, even for seasoned assistants. Um, and I'd say that was like 20% of what I would see. 
The next 20% are what I will call the best. These are the ones that were timely submitted. They contain detailed descriptions, compliments on strengths, suggestions for improvements, offers to help on the improvement side. So these were the creme de la creme, the ones that everybody loved reading because they were detailed. They contained everything that they should. They were specific. Um, and they also offered, they didn't just identify what needed to be improved. They actually had strategies on how that was going to happen. So like, you know, signing them up for a class to improve their Excel skills or whatever it was. And then the third bucket, which by far was the largest one. And I don't think this is a Midwestern thing. I think this probably is universal or what I'm going to refer to as the Charlie Browns. So um, I'm a fan of Charlie Brown. And if you remember the old saying, it's your own fault because you're so wishy-washy. Um, that's these reviews. So they were timely completed and they contained the check boxes, but they gave very little or vague feedback. They said things like great person, nice to work with, you know. Okay, these ones were almost as bad as the ones who didn't do the review because they offered very little or confusing insight into the actual performance. Sure, anyone is happy to be called a great person, but what does that actually have to do with whether they were meeting their expectations on job performance? The saddest thing was when the recipients of these reviews would find themselves with a dwindling pipeline of work and then ultimately reassigned. Was it because they weren't a great person anymore, or was it just because no one actually took the time to evaluate their performance and give them feedback? Those assistants would often then go on to work for other people who may or may not have helped them become their personal best at their job. So some assistants are really intuitive at learning their supervisor's needs and wants. Others need more detailed instructions and training. Again, neither one is good or bad, they're just different. The challenge as a supervisor, I think, is determining what your personal tolerance and abilities are to work with the ones who need that more detailed instruction and training. It might take more time, but if you ultimately get the same result as the one who figured it out without the extra effort, I would say that it's definitely worth it. So one of the things that we've done that we found to be a lot more effective, and I learned this from a friend of mine who runs a company, Instead of having performance review, we do mutual feedback sessions. And at the year end, we ask everybody to set their goals. And the feedback is actually mutual, which means you have to create an environment in which people feel safe to share. And sometimes it's hard to hear. Like I, you know, oh, I love mentoring. And then one of my mentees said, well, you know, you travel so much that it's really hard to, it's like, oh, well. And so I'm like, okay, we'll do Zoom calls when I'm traveling then. How's that? And you can solve it. But sometimes that mutual feedback, um, it can be hard, but it's really valuable if you take the time not only to share, but to listen. So I really like your point because it's, again, I think part of your point in this is this is a relationship that you're trying to build to help someone achieve their goals as well as to accomplish what you sought them for as an assistant. So a lot of people use these terms, difficult conversations or hard conversations. And I think you deflect that term, which I really like, because sometimes when I hear people say, oh, I'm really good at having the difficult conversation, that means I'm really good at taking your inventory and telling you what I think. And that's why I like the mutual feedback creating an environment that's safe that you can really share. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you're exactly right, Mary. I don't, um, I, I'm not a big fan of the quote, difficult conversation in large part, because I don't think most of these conversations actually need to be difficult conversations. 
If you've actually taken the time to outline your expectations to your assistant, and then you simply identify in a non-confrontational way whether the expectations are being met with really specific examples, then that conversation shouldn't be difficult. It really would just then at that point be a two-way conversation with you, with you identifying the concern, your assistant providing a response, and then the two of you collaborating on a plan to address whatever the issue might be. But just like all supervisors, not all supervisors are great at giving constructive feedback, not all assistants are great at receiving it. But this is why you did your initial homework. Is what is your assistant's communication and feedback style? So the assistant who might break down in tears in your office might better receive feedback in an email that can be privately read, processed, and responded to. You might not always have the luxury of time or circumstances to tailor your approach to their style, but if you can, why wouldn't you do so? Especially if that means the difference between achieving a different outcome with this person instead of them quitting or asking to be reassigned, and then you've got to start from scratch and train an entirely new person. Those are the situations where I think if you can match your style to theirs, it really can yield some big benefits. And then in those instances where that difficult conversation can't be avoided, well, then it's incumbent on you to set the tone and be the leader of that conversation. And in a po- I don't think there's a lot that you can't find a positive way to couch. It's that you don't, you know, it's basically just not criticizing the person, but we always talk about processes versus the person and couch it in the terms of, well, this is the process and this is where we're having some challenges in the process. And I think there's a lot of ways you can do that where somebody can be less. But I like your comments a lot on really getting to know the way people communicate and how they handle feedback. And I think we tend to have, we're going to do the feedback for everybody this way where it really merits some personal touches in terms of who they are. Well, let's talk just another moment about performance reviews. I kind of talked about how we do mutual feedback sessions. And I think your position is that we may do just regular performance reviews. In our case, we do quarterly mutual feedback sessions, but that's not necessarily quite enough, is it? Well, I think that performance assessment and feedback is really something you do every single day. Every time you choose to delegate and respond to work product, that is a performance assessment, whether you acknowledge it as one or not. Um, But my guideposts on what I would consider the more formal ones are, first of all, I think specificity is really important. Unclear is unkind. Um, That is one of my favorite Brene Brown quotes, and I use it in my life in all aspects. Unclear is unkind. If people are confused about what the expectation is or whether they're meeting it, you are being unkind to them. And so try to be as clear and specific as possible. Um, scheduled performance reviews are also important. Whatever that is, whether it's annual, quarterly, monthly, um, keep to that schedule because it really disciplines you to be thinking about it, preparing for it, and doing it. And and then that way your employee is also not left with this, like wondering like, well, are we going to do it this year? If we didn't do it this year, does that mean everything's great? Or am I doing so bad they couldn't even take the time to do it? That schedule is really important. Um, make sure your review has a plan of action. If there are areas of improvement, then you need to discuss how it's going to be addressed and when. Follow-ups also critical. Don't just shove that review in a drawer and forget about it, or I guess these days put it in the file folder on your computer and forget about it. 
make sure you're looking at it. And if there's follow-up to be done, check in with them and make sure that it's happening. You should also use it as a tool for next year's baseline. So as you're preparing to do the next performance review, pull out the last one and then figure out whether both sides have held up their end of the bargain in terms of what needs to be done um, before the next performance review. So if you, for example, promised you're going to send them to a class so that they could hone their Excel skills and you didn't do it, well, then that's the part where you need to take ownership of your part of the partnership and say, you know what? I didn't do my part this time. We're going to try to do better. Um, and then also you can use that performance review as the litmus for a reward in their love language. So, you know, if they have been putting in a lot of extra hours and you know that having, you know, Fridays off in the summer is important to them, well, then maybe that's something that you can build into how you're going to structure their work environment for the next period of time. Well, Crystal, I really want to thank you for your well-thought-out approach to this topic. Do you have any last thoughts? Well, it's estimated that the average person spends 90,000 hours of their lifetime at work. So that's about one-third of the average person's lifespan. So the relationships we forge at work are nearly as important as those outside of work. The more things we can do to make those 90,000 hours productive and enjoyable, well, then the better our lives will be and the better the lives of our colleagues will be. Partnering with your assistant is going to yield benefits for you, your assistant, and your employer. Well, thanks again, Crystal. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.